locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona Mixtape just around the corner, did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me tonight My friend, my colleague, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daily Mark, we are days away from the Monaco GP. Are you excited? We had a weekend off last weekend, unfortunately, of course, because of the circumstances in Northern Italy, but we had a pause. We're back to the grind. One, are you excited? And two, how the heck are you doing? (laughs) Before we get started, I just, I wish we were live streaming this tonight because the look on your face just now when the intro from JT the Human dropped was just priceless. It was just like, you know, we've been doing the show together for for how long? A couple of years now, right? And then all of a sudden it's like you weren't expecting the intro music when every show we've had intro music of some kind or another, but I'm doing good, man. And yeah, you know, honestly, this weekend, Monaco, I'm pretty meh on Monaco. You know, I, I hate to be a downer right off of the top because I know for, for some people, they get really stoked and pumped up about Monaco, but I'm not really here for the glitz and glamour. I'm not really here for the yachts or the swimming pools or the A-list celebrities. I'm here for the racing and Monaco. I mean, it just doesn't cut it in in my mind for modern formula one the track's too short it's too narrow it's too twisty the cars are too big they're too wide they're too everything and it's basically a rundown to the first corner and then whoever qualifies in first is typically the person who wins it and but you know still tune in on Sunday night when we do a recap show because we will watch the race. We will talk about it, but yeah, it's it's not really my 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 favorite one to to be quite honest. Yeah, and you know what? I think it's fair to even just talk about this a little bit. Obviously, we're going to do a race review towards the end of the show, but I, I think it's fair to open up that dialogue right now that in the past three or four years, we've been exposed to 30 plus different Formula One Grand Prix circuits because of COVID. We went to places we haven't seen in a long time. We've added a host of new races to the calendar. Obviously, we're going to see Vegas later this season. And we saw Miami last season and we revisited Turkey for the first time in a long time. And we went to La Salle and Qatar and we introduced Jeddah. Like, there's a lot of great Formula One circuit and there's a lot of really okay Formula One circuit. And, and then there's Monaco, which is just a terrible Formula One circuit. And I know two years ago, we sat here, we tried to build it up because a lot of our audience was new and they were seeing it for the first time. And we got a lot of blowback from that. So I think we're being a little bit more honest and a little bit more authentic, but it's not a great race. And I'll be totally honest, the the visuals of seeing the yachts in the harbor and the celebrity standing trackside as as the checkered flag is waved, does absolutely nothing for me. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it looks it looks neat on TV, but if if I wanted to see what Monaco looked like, I could Google some photos or I could ask <laughs> some friends that have been there. There's a lot of other yeah. ways to experience Monaco. And I just I don't I don't get excited about this race. And I feel I feel like Formula One in so many ways has outgrown it. And maybe for a long time, people would talk about it being the crown jewel of Formula One. And it was so important to the calendar. And it was so important to the calendar that they were basically able to negotiate 
their contract on their terms. They paid what they wanted to do. They got the date they wanted. They they broadcast the race themselves using Tele, Tele Monte Carlo, and and they they basically had a ton of leverage. And I think all of that leverage is now evaporated, and they're paying a hosting fee, and they've lost the broadcast rights to Formula One, who's going to use their global broadcast capabilities. But I would I wouldn't be crushed at get. I get that there's some sentimentality because it's been on the calendar consistently since 1950, but I wouldn't be heartbroken if it was gone from the calendar. There's, there aren't many races that are less compelling than this one for me. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of like, in general, it's kind of a cool location, but I mean, we, we looked at a graphic, I, I think that you pulled it up and this must be at least two years ago now, Mark, just sort of the evolution of the, the, the Formula One car since 1950, since the first time they went to Monte Carlo, the first time they raced around that circuit and how the, the, the cars have evolved in the last was it 75 years or whatever and how how much wider and longer they are even compared just to like seven eight nine ten years ago i mean the cars have increased dramatically in in size just in the past decade and when you see that and it it was just a real stark a a real real wake-up call to well yeah i mean the, the track is narrow there aren't it, I mean, even previously, there weren't really a lot of uh, overtaking points as it was, but now the cars have increased so much in size, there just isn't a lot of real estate uh, left on that circuit for these guys to try and, and get around one another. It really becomes, well, I mean, even, even strategy doesn't really, I don't know if it's, I mean, strategy is always important, but it seems like the overcut, the undercut, I mean, the whole thing just seems to it doesn't seem to have as much of an effect here. It really seems to come down to almost luck of the draw that whoever stays out front. I mean, Ricardo won there, what, was it 2018 or 2019? Whatever it was. And what's the problem that he had? Was his MGUK that was failing or something? I mean, he basically had about like 75% of his available horsepower. He still managed to keep that car in front of everybody else for what was it, like 60 laps or something like that to, to win that race? I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to throw shade at Danny Ricardo. I'm not going to take anything away from him because, I mean, you know, that, that was a superb drive. He did what he needed to do. But I mean, on no other circuit could you be at such a disadvantage compared to all of your other competitors, all the other rivals out there on the track, and be able to have that advantage of just because you're the first car on the track and the track sucks for overtaking, that you know the, the, the job that you have to defend that lead is just made that much easier, right? Yeah, I totally agree. The the one thing that maybe hasn't changed, and, and you talk about the transformation of the cars over the years and the decades, the one thing that hasn't changed, though, is that winning here still means a lot more to most of the drivers than winning in most places, that this is something that they savor in, in a pretty meaningful way. I think the drivers typically keep the trophy so they don't go back to the factories and sit in a glass showcase in the lobby. <clears throat> it means a lot to the drivers, and I think it means a lot to the teams. One other point that that I heard on a podcast the other day and excuse me if I'm wrong, I think it was the shift F one podcast, but they made an interesting comment about the fact that Monaco is a real outlier on the calendar in terms of what it demands of the cars. It's very untraditional. It has a different circus circuit is it's, 
a surface. It's it's very, very tight. It's very narrow. You don't get heat in the brakes the same way that you would in other circuits. You don't get heat in the tire in the way that you do in other circuits. So these cars really aren't optimized for Monaco. And that had never really occurred to me either, that you can't really design a car to function at its optimal capability here because there's no other track like it. So effectively, you you develop this car and you design the car for the rest of the calendar because there's a lot of commonality between most other tracks. And, and this is an outlier. So you get these cars that are unoptimized for the circuit. And generally, they're all unoptimized. So they tend to be kind of competing on even keel. But I'm not excited for this. I'll, I'll watch qualifying because qualifying is still a fun shootout. But ultimately, mm-hmm. like you said, and this sounds cliche even saying this because you're going to hear this analysis everywhere, that if you take pole through qualifying, you're very likely going to be in a position where you can win this race. Over the last few years, it's been typically a one-stop race. And the opportunity to displace somebody and pick up a spot in the pecking order is typically through pit strategy. So you, I think you mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. So that's where places can be won or lost typically, because like you said, they're not going to be t- picked up through through overtakes traditionally, unless somebody makes a mistake and clips a wall, breaks their suspension, uh, runs wide, goes over a curb and have to give a place back. Typically, unless there's driver error, you're not going to gain spaces via racecraft and simply out driving the competitor in front of you. Well, even if like uh, you're following someone in the, or in, in front of somebody else, whatever the position, you know, whatever track position is, and that car that you're jockeying for positioning goes for their pit stop before you, you know, it's not like that you can put the hammer down, throw in a couple of smoking fast laps and really open up that, um, you know, that, that distance there and try to, you know, nullify the effect that the undercut might have. Or if your rival goes into the pit sooner, they, you try to take advantage of that and go with the overcut. You know, I just, I'm just not convinced that you can really make up that much, you know, take advantage of that one way or another out on the track, just because it, you know, <laughs> For for all the reasons we just discussed in the last ten minutes or so, there there just isn't the the the, the space to do so, and yeah, you know, it's just kind of going back to your other point there that you know the, the drivers still seem to, to to really appreciate it. Sure, I mean, yeah, it's got historic value. Many of the drivers live in Monaco, but you know, the whole sort of you know, I don't know. There's just something about like, you know, the, the whole one percenter thing that just, I don't know, it, it just doesn't do it for me. And like the spectacle on the track doesn't really do it for me either. So out of like all the other you know races on the calendar, this is like I say, this is the one that I'll kind of go through it because it's it, it's a grind. I'm not going to be uh, getting up to, to, to watch it like specifically compared to some other races that we have on the calendar or it's like, Oh, I'm looking forward to, to, to spa. For example, is one of my favorite tracks. Monza is another favorite one. Silverstone. I mean, those are like track tracks and, and races. I get really, really excited about Japan as well. You know, like there, there's, there's a whole bunch, but it's just like, I, I circle those dates on the calendar or I guess people don't, use calendars anymore but i set a reminder in my phone <laughs> i guess that's more contemporary you so go with the, the reminder in the phone 
because those are races I really look forward to. Whereas Monaco is like, okay, this weekend's Monaco. Let's just sit down for the two hours and just kind of grind through it. And then it's done for, for, for another year. We can go, you know, move on to the next one, but you know, whatever. I like, I like your point about the 1% as well. And, and people listening to this show know I'm a huge pop culture guy. I like my music. I, I like my, like my movies and my podcasts and things like that. But I, I really don't like when Formula One trots celebrities through the gridwalk and drag them through the paddock. And I, I despise during a race when they cut to a garage and Tom Cruise is sitting with the Mercedes team with the headphones on, listening to the chatter between the engineer and the drivers. Like, I don't need that. I don't want that. I think F1 mm-hmm. is better than that. I think there was a point where it was important to them to to F1 it was important to F1 that they they showed celebrities engaging with the sport because it gave them credibility and I don't think they need that now and then of course yeah. Monaco is the the ultimate flex and and the ultimate kind of drip fest because you expect people with significant money to be there and that the harbor's full of yachts does nothing for me I don't care I just, I don't mm-hmm. care. And I don't want to see Chris Jenner on the camera 74 times towards the end of the race. <laughs> and I love Justin Bieber. I don't need to see him waving the checkered flag. I don't need to see Gabrielle Union. And these are people I love, Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade celebrating. Like, I, I don't need to see any of this. And I, I love so many of these people, minus Chris Jenner. But I want the focus to be on the racing and the people within the racing ecosystem. And unfortunately, at Monaco, like the American races in particular, uh, I think the celebrities tend to take away from the people that should be getting all of the exposure and, and the focus, which is the drivers and, and the, t- the members of the team, the team personnel. Yeah, I mean, the only time I kind of like those sort of like uh, garage shots and things like that, for example, is that if there's a really cool story out on the track, I mean, this weekend, let's say that Charles Leclerc finally manages to get that monkey off his back and win his hometown race. I mean, he's been really... You know, he's had some pretty bad luck since uh, he's moved to, to Ferrari. Not, I mean, you could almost uh, apply that at any track that uh, Charles Leclerc's raced at for, for for Ferrari, but the luck has seemed a bit worse in Monaco than anywhere else. So, I mean, if he's got like family or some friends in the Ferrari garage, or there's another great story that there's another young driver, you see their family or whatever Family's it is. Different, that, 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 that's Family's different, right? Different. Exactly. Family's different. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I I would because that that's a cool story to see because they've 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 put so much aside to help this you know the you know the the, the driver and their career and everything to see that person do well and see their family kind of living that moment with them that that's cool that there there's a real emotion there you know, you you could get excited about that and you know that that's kind of cool. So anyways, we kind of jumped into it a little bit uh, earlier than usual, and there are lots of really cool things to talk about this week. So we're going to kick off a couple of them, go into break, keep going because there's uh, you know plenty to do before we even you know preview the race itself. But before we do that, I just want to give a shout out to the Race Weekend magazine. Uh, you can head on over to theraceweekend.com. That is R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Enter in our promo code Scuderia Pod at checkout. Save 10%. You can also head on over to Racing Exclusives.com. 
Com. Tease has uh, presented us with a wonderful uh, bunch of swag and a, a signed half-scale Max Verstappen helmet for the winner of our Fantasy League uh, this uh, year. So go and check them out, RacingExclusives.com. they got tons of great things in the store there, and they all come with a certificate of authenticity. Now, I, I know you should will probably want to take this one because our good friend Andy Amendola has got something going on with Red Racer Books. So let's hear what Andy's got going on. Yeah, Andy, man, this guy is grinding out there, producing some really great original He's putting world in class. the work. Yeah, man, some really great world class formula one related merchandise and obviously you've heard us talk at length about the books that he's produced my son has has both of them we spent many many hours reviewing them but he's got some really cool stuff brewing up for father's day so um, i'm just reading here from the website they've developed a, a father's day grand prix bundle um, and the bundles which include free shipping um, are very very cool so let me bring up the first one so i can describe the contents so the first one is a bundle that includes one abcs of racing hardcover or hardcover book from red racer books which you've heard us speak a lot about but it also includes a new a new gizmo a new gadget a new tool it includes one grand prix specialty racing set from way to play cars and this is a basically it's a racetrack that your kids can piece together almost like it's giant pieces of lego uh so if you've got some model cars at home if you've got some hot wheels if you've got some 118 scale cars you can break them out and play very very cool so the bundle includes one copy one hardcover copy of abc's of racing and it includes a grand prix specialty racing set from way to play cars um, included within that flexible and durable toy circuit 16 curves and eight straight special grand prix prints can be used inside or outside Courage is imaginative play. Great to combine with other toys. They have another bundle here, which includes the same. I'll bring this up real quick just so I can make sure we read it. It includes two books, one ABCs of racing hardcover, one all about race cars, and one F1 circuit Zanvort specialty racing set from Way to Play Cars. So you can actually cool. build the Zanvort circuit, which I think you would be pretty excited about. Um, right now, they're both on sale. So the first bundle, which includes a single book, goes going for $118. And if you're interested in the other, which includes two hardcover books, and then Zanvort F1 circuit in the premium bundle that's going for 201. So some very, very cool stuff there. And again, if you're looking for a gift for a father that will allow them to share their passion for racing with their kids, I think this is a really great place to, to start. Very cool. Love all the stuff that uh, that Andy's been doing over the last couple of years. Hey, Mark, why don't we jump into a break now, uh, a little bit ahead of schedule, because we can come back, because we're going to talk about uh, this uh, Honda-Aston Martin partnership, and that's going to take up a lot of discussion. This is really, really huge news, so we'll, we'll do that in just a moment. So uh, don't go away. We will be back after a very brief word from our sponsors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, 
not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. So, yes, huge news that we just uh, talked about uh, before the break. Honda is set to return to Formula One in 2026 as as the, the engine supplier for Aston Martin. This is huge, huge, huge news. And uh, Mark, when I heard this story break earlier this week, I just kind of went through that whole sort of a repeating endless circle. It's like, is Honda here? Are they gone? Like, what is the deal with Honda? Because they were in Formula One, then they quit, but they're not really gone because they're still supplying power units to Red Bull. But, you know, it's all been kind of confusing. But the whole point is that, uh, you know, they're still in Formula One right now. They've won a number of championships with, uh, with Red Bull. And Red Bull's decided, obviously, to start up their own thing with Red Bull powertrains. And they have uh, an agreement with Honda to keep using the Honda power unit for a couple of years yet but then aston martin splitting off moving away from mercedes and taking on these honda power units boy this is big mark and it really when i heard this i was just like wow aston martin they're here and they they really mean business i think this is an exciting time to be around this team i mean they've had a very good start to the season this year Fernando Alonso is driving like 21-year-old Fernando, not like 41-year-old Fernando. I think there's a lot of things going well for this team right now, not to mention the new factory. This engine deal, I think, is just uh, massive for not only for Aston Martin, for Honda, but Formula One as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with everything you said. And I have to give credit where credit's due that I, I think Aston Martin performance CEO Martin Whitmarsh was a big part of brokering this deal. And if you know me, I've been a big critic of Martin Whitmarsh for a very, very long time. But interestingly, he was also the person that brokered the deal to bring Honda to McLaren back in 2015. That deal was sealed in 2013. So here he is now, many years later, 10 years later in 2023, brokering a very, very similar deal with Aston Martin. And this is both a a significant deal for Aston Martin, but perhaps an even more significant deal for Formula One as a whole. And when I talk about it being a significant deal for Aston Martin, and a lot of these points are going to sound familiar because you and I have talked about them so much over the past few weeks that as we understand it, and based on some quotes coming out of the Honda camp, as it stands right now, this is an exclusive arrangement that Honda will be supplying power units to one team and one team only, which is Aston Martin. So the two teams will be able to begin work on that 2026 power unit effective immediately. And we should clarify as well that while ultimately Aston Martin is going to divorce their technical relationship from Mercedes, they'll continue to partner with them through the end of 2025. So this new power unit arrangement doesn't go into effect until 2026 when the new 2026 power units come into effect. So in the meantime, Honda as a contractor is going to continue to supply the current spec engines to Red Bull and Alpha Tauri, but simultaneously, they are going to start developing the 2026 power unit in collaboration with, with Aston Martin. And this is really powerful because it effectively makes Aston Martin a works team. 
in the sense that they will now collaboratively have control over the design and the build of the entire car from the chassis to the engine. Now, it also means that they have to be pretty ambitious because as a Mercedes technical partner today, they don't just buy the engines, they're also buying the gearbox. And in this new arrangement with Honda, Honda is going to supply the power unit, but now Aston Martin is going to have to start developing parts that there would otherwise be buying from from Mercedes, including the gearbox and a lot of the other packaging materials and components that go into putting that power unit into to the chassis. So I think this is huge for Aston Martin. I think it's a coup for Martin Whitmarsh. I think it's a coup for Lawrence Stroll that ultimately he wanted to have a championship caliber Formula One team. And he's building it in such a manner that I can't help but think that they're going to arrive at that destination sooner rather than later. And I think when I said this was huge for Formula One, we're talking about a sport that's going to have six engine manufacturers in 2026. Six. The last time we had six, you had to go back to 2007 and 2008 when we had the likes of Toyota and BMW um, and some other teams on, on the grid that this is huge. And really, it just speaks to the fact that one, the sport's incredibly attractive that you can bring six power unit manufacturers onto the grid, possibly seven if Cadillac can and, and Andretti Motorsport can kind of get there get their package together and get onto the grid. But right now you have six, which is a huge, which is a huge, huge, huge win for this team because from a marketing perspective, they're winning and, and they're winning in a pretty significant way. Um, I think one of the big takeaways from the last couple of days is Honda wanted to return for a number of reasons. And one of them was that the 2026 power units are far more compatible with their vision and their aim for their road car divisions than the current spec power units. That if we had largely carried over the current spec hybrid power units to 2026, I don't think Honda would have entertained the idea of returning. Of course, as we know, they're going to be far more um, electrical based in terms of how much of the power is generated from the electrical system. Uh, they're going to have synthetic fuels, uh, all these kind of things. But the other big, 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 big thing that made this attractive to Honda is you and I have talked so much about the cost cap, $140 million a year, $135 million, $130 million a year. Teams can breach the cost cap. There's a there's a penalty, but ultimately it's designed to drive competitive parity. Starting this year, starting this year, and this is something that we don't talk a lot about and isn't broadly understood, there is also a separate cost cap for power units. So Mercedes, Ferrari, Honda, Red Bull, Ford powertrains, etc., they have to adhere to a cost cap for their engine development. So in 2023, 2024 and 2025, those teams are allowed to commit only $95 million a year to develop the 2026 spec power units. Now in 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30, they're allowed to spend $130 million a year or kind of designing and, and enhancing and developing that power unit. But just as the cost cap lends cost certainty to teams that want to join the grid and to existing teams. The fact that there's now a cost cap on the development of this new 2026 power unit uh, lent a, a lot of, I would say, um, comfort to Honda that they, they know that coming in, our maximum financial outlay per year 
for the next three years is going to be $95 million. 95 this year, next year, the year after. So they know that Ferrari is only spending 95. Red Bull Ford Powertrains is only spending 95. Mercedes is only spending 95. Renault. So it's, it lends some comfort there, but ultimately this is this is huge. I'm I'm incredibly excited. I'm so happy that they're on the grid. And it's funny because Mark, one of the very first podcasts that you and I did together was back at the end of 2020, and we were talking about mm-hmm. how Ford had announced they were exiting the sport after 21. And of course, they went on to win the drivers' championship that year. They won two championships the year after, and they're going to win two championships this year. So they've had a phenomenal run with Red Bull, and I see no reason why that run can't continue with with their new partner in Aston Martin. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Mark, I just wanted to read a couple of quotes here at an article from uh, BBC Chief F1 writer Andrew Benson. And uh, he's got a couple of uh, really interesting quotes here. Uh, the first one is from Honda Racing Corporation uh, President Koji Watanabe. And uh, the quote is uh, as follows, quote, in pursuit of its goal of in achieving carbon neutrality by 2030, starting in the 2026 season, the FIA will mandate the use of 100% carbon neutral fuel and the deployment of electrical power will be increased significantly by three times from current regulations. With this massive increase in electrical power, the key to winning an F1 will be a compact, lightweight, and high-power motor with a high-performance battery that is capable of swiftly handling high-power output as well as the energy management technology. We believe this uh, know-how gained from this new challenge has the potential to be applied directly to a future mass production electrical vehicle, end quote. And then uh, Watanabe also goes on to to talk about uh, the removal of the MGUH, which is the part of the hybrid system in the uh, the current power units. And, uh, you know, you and I, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit. Anyways, uh, Watanabe had to say about uh, the MGU and its removal uh, as follows, quote, currently the electrical power accounts for 20% or less compared to the internal combustion engine. But the new regulations require about 50% or more of electrification, which moves even further towards electrification. I believe the technology for electrification will be useful for us in producing vehicles in the future. End quote. So there you go. And, and that was a big thing because when they announced a couple of years ago that they were going to leave the sport at the end of 2021, that, um, that the whole idea for Honda was to uh, focus solely, like focus all their resources solely on the electrification of their road cars. So that, uh, you know, that this really is a, you know, a fascinating development that the way that these new engine regs for 2026 are so attractive for Honda, not just to come back into Formula One, but they see a direct tie-in to what they can develop and and build that will, you know, I, I think when Watanabe says that they see a real potential for a mass-produced electric vehicle, which I think is uh, really exciting. Um, also, a couple other quotes here from uh, Martin uh, Whitmarsh, who you mentioned, and Martin is the, uh, the CEO for Aston Martin Performance Technologies, and he had the following to say, quote, Aston Martin is building a team to win in F1. We have been recruiting the right people and investing in the required facilities and developing the right culture and processes to win. To partner a global motorsport titan like Honda is an extremely exciting and important further step for the team. Both organizations share the same relentless ambition to succeed on track. We are very proud, honored, and grateful to put this put in place this partnership. Anyways, um, Whitmarsh also goes on to say, quote, is very clear for what we've seen with Honda and our recent learnings that they have a huge passion. They want to win. 
This is what they want to do, and that is our goal. We are already confident that this is going to be a fantastic partnership for the future. End quote. And you know, there's there, there's a number of things here. You know, like you know that uh, where where Martin just mentions, he says investing in the required facilities, and I think that's a key takeaway that uh, you know maybe needs to be you know just brought a little bit more into light because if this was just the rebranded Racing Point team, which was just a rebrand from you know Force India in that same tiny out of date facility at Silver. Silverstone, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I don't really believe that, you know, there's anything behind this. But, you know, Aston Martin and, you know, they, they've been building a state of the art new campus, new facility. Are, are they in there or are they, is it still in later its final this stages year. of construction? It, fe- it later feels this like year we've because, been saying that for five years, but later this year. I, I feel like that, yeah, yeah, because I think they've pushed that uh, that date back at least yeah, a couple COVID, of times. COVID yeah, some havoc with the yeah, timelines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they, they are going to shortly move into a state-of-the-art facility. And of course, like when you say that, not only are they currently buying the, the power unit and other sundries, for for example, like the gearbox from Mercedes, I, I'd be really skeptical whether or not they'd be, be able to pull off like the design of like and build of a, like a, you know, something as important as a gearbox in their current facilities. But now that uh, they they are poised to move into something state of the art, something modern, something significantly bigger, they've got a, a growing workforce that I, you know, I'm about as confident as I can be looking from the outside in and, you know, being, uh, you know, th- this being a team that I'm really excited to see grow and hopefully win in the future. I'm about as confident as I could be because they're doing everything, let, let's just say, on the outside, they appear to be doing everything correctly. Now, whether or not they, they, they put all the pieces in the right place and they've done everything right, we we will see that proven over the years ahead. But certainly to, to partner with somebody like Honda, who are just, you know, hitting ball after ball out of the park, it's just constant home runs with, with Honda the last couple of years, you got to be very excited. Okay, this is what they're doing right now. And as you said, they can effectively start working now on designing things and, and working together for the future, because that was a big thing that when they partnered with Red Bull now several years ago was before when Red Bull, they, they were just basically trying to marry the old Renault engine into the car. But once they divorced themselves from Renault, reconnected uh, or they connected with Honda, and there was this real you know teamwork that they were working on you know building the car and the engine together so it was a lot more compatible rather than honda saying here guys here's a uh, here's a power unit you guys figure out how you're going to put it to the car so the fact that you know there was that real teamwork um, you know attitude i'm sure that honda is going to take that forward with them and the fact that they got like literally years to, to start working together is just, uh, I think if you're an Aston Martin fan, I think you got to be very, very excited about this prospect. There's another great quote here from Koji Wasanabe from the Honda team. He says, in October of 2020, we announced the withdrawal from the F1. So we ended the F1 activities at the end of the 2021 season. But until March of 2022, we have been fully engaged in development of the power units for up until 2022. We had the full head count still remaining until this time. So the development numbers or the development members were still existing until March of 2022. However, then they were allocated to different carbon neutral projects. So the head count of the development members started to 
decrease starting from April of 2022. However, in April of 2022, a new company called Honda Racing Corporation, HRC, was established. This is the dedicated company for motorsport races. So this company kept on engaging in the studies and development of four-wheel technology. We have commenced studies regarding the new regulations. So therefore, we don't think we have lost so much regardless of our withdrawal from F1 race at one point in time. And this is important because you and I have talked a lot about the fact that there are other teams in Formula One that already have single cylinder internal combustion engines that mirror the 2026 power unit engine specifications on the test bench that these teams are actively, we know Red Bull powertrains, Red Bull Ford powertrains, Mercedes, Renault, Ferrari, we all know that they're fairly advanced in their development of the power unit. And the reason that this is a reassuring comment from Koji is the fact that I was worried that while they were idly sitting on the sidelines, these other teams were shifting ahead with their development and they could be falling behind. And the reason this comment's relevant is if you remember, Honda most recently rejoined F1 in 2015. That was a year into the turbo hybrid era. So they started that journey a year after the other teams. And by the time they had an engine ready for McLaren, Renault, Mercedes, Ferrari, et cetera, they already had an entire campaign of data to push the development of their engines forward. So Honda was already at a hugely significant disadvantage. The other thing that I think is worth calling to attention here is as bad as the performance and reliability of that Honda power unit was in 2015, McLaren really had cuffed Honda's ability to innovate and develop that power unit themselves. They had imposed some very strict restrictions on the packaging, the weight, the dimensions of that power unit. And I think once they were once they were unhandcuffed from from McLaren and McLaren's onerous demands on the power unit and they were able to develop more freely once they got to got to a good place with Red Bull, they they obviously flourished. So I think there's a lot to learn from the discord that that arose from their relationship with McLaren, but I think this is such such a good thing. And you know, Mark, over the last couple of years, I sat here and I criticized Lawrence Stroll for hiring Martin Whitmarsh, and I hired them. I criticized them for hiring Mike Crack. I, I criticized them for dispensing seemingly of Otmar. All these different decisions, but as we sit here now, and the team's on the verge of opening a new factory and on the verge of becoming a works team in a partnership with Honda, and as they sit second in the championship, and and Fernando Alonso has four podiums through five Grand Prix, everything seems to be coming up Aston Martin, and I, I think it's an exciting time to be a Formula One fan for, if no other reason than simply because we've seen a rejuvenation of uh, the Aston Martin brand on the Formula One grid. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's such a, a great brand. Their marketability, uh, sorry, their marketability. That's a difficult word uh, late on a Thursday night to try and <laughs> spit out. Anyways, it, it, it's a great brand to try and market. I mean, it, it's just got such an appeal to it. And if they, if they can get a car, get a team that is really you know at the front of Formula One, I think that uh, it'll really take off. I think it'll really capture people's uh, imaginations. But I, I just wanted to back things up for a second. You raised such a good point that when Honda came back into the Formula One in 2015 with, with McLaren, yeah, they were a year behind everyone else, but it seemed like the gap between Honda compared to 
Ferrari, Mercedes, and Renault, the other three um, engine manufacturers at the time, it seemed like it, it was so much more. I mean, t- to say that they were behind the development curve compared to those other three, I mean, I think is a bit of an understatement because they were really, really, really you know, disadvantaged. I mean, McLaren, that is, with that Honda power at that time, for the reasons that you correctly laid out. I mean, to the point that when Red Bull was looking at it a couple of years down the road, when they when they had uh, you know Hondas in the which would have been uh, Toro Rosso at the at the time or Alpha Tauri now, were basically comparing the numbers they're getting from the Renault engines in their own cars compared to the Honda engines in the in the Toro Rosso's. I was kind of wondering. I, I had a lot of question marks at the time. It's like you know, is this a right move? Is this is a wise move for 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 Red Bull? But I mean. It was a bit of a masterstroke by them because, I mean, they literally were able to try before they buy, right? And 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 see the numbers that uh, that were coming out from both power units. I mean, obviously, the rest of that story is uh, you know kind of writes itself with the success that they that they had because I mean, when they switched over initially, Honda said that the goal, the benchmark, was to deliver performance that was on par. With the results that they were getting with with, uh, with with Renault, which is by and large what they got that first season, but things very quickly accelerated. Uh, you know, after that, I mean, the the pandemic uh, disruption uh, notwithstanding, I mean, once once they got everything all figured out and they got everything all lined up, I mean, it, that that program really took off. But it, it was a pretty rocky reintroduction, or, uh, you know, relaunch into Formula One. But it was exciting, exciting times. But the, the next thing I want to talk about is obviously Honda, Japanese uh, manufacturer. We have one Japanese driver in Formula One in the at the moment that is Alpha Tauri's uh, Yuki Sonoda. And, um, you know, there, there is some speculation that, uh, you know, what with Honda committing long term to Formula One, that they would love to see a Japanese driver in one of those cars with the benefit of having Japanese power, hopefully, you know, you know, propelling that driver to uh, wins and possibly a championship. The, the the big question is, I mean, sure, I, I understand that. That makes sense. I mean, you would love, uh, you know, everybody loves to cheer for the hometown team, right? And if you're Honda, and I mean, Japan is, uh, I mean, there's, you know, such a culture that loves racing. I mean, they, they love Formula One. We see it all the time when we go to uh, to Suzuka every year for the, uh, for the Japanese Grand Prix. So you can see that would be a logical talking point that would come up. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I, I, I love uh, Yuki. I mean, his great personality, <laughs> probably, uh, you know, for, for the wrong reasons. But, you know, if he was to be that person, that driver that they want to see, Honda that is, in uh, an Aston Martin and hopefully winning races and potentially championships, I think Yuki Sonoda's got a lot of maturing to do both in and out of a Formula One car. Hammy, your thoughts? Yeah, I don't I don't disagree and and I apologize for the pause there as I collected my thoughts, but it, <laughs> there was a general acknowledgement from Honda this week that they will not have direct influence over who's going to be in these cars. And oftentimes in a works arrangement, the the power unit supplier will actually have some input. Now, if you flash back to the late 2000s when 
Mercedes was supplying McLaren in an exclusive deal. I think one of the things that caused a lot of discord in that relationship was that they didn't have any input. And I think there's a general acknowledgement here that Honda, as the relationship, the agreement currently stands, won't have any influence, but they'll certainly be able to share their input. And it only makes sense that they would acknowledge and promote the idea of potentially having a Japanese driver in one of the two Aston Martins come 2026. And obviously, like you said, there's a Japanese driver on the grid today in Yuki Tsunoda. He's a couple of years into his career with Alpha Tauri. I think off the track, he's probably developed a little bit uh, versus where he was during his initial campaign, where he seemed woefully unprepared for the rigor and the demands and the requirements of being a Formula One driver. And we saw glimpses of that, of course, in, in Netflix's Drive to Survive, where he simply didn't want to commit to a workout routine. But I think he's developed and he's managed to claw his way into the points a few times this year with a car that probably doesn't deserve to be there. But again, if I'm Honda and I'm, I'm kind of committing to this works program with Aston Martin. Sure. I, I, for, for the sake of marketability, like you said, a couple of minutes ago, love to have a Japanese driver, but I think what's more important than having a Japanese driver for Honda is simply having the best possible drivers, because what's more important than having a Japanese driver in a car powered by a Honda power unit that's being shipped to Silverstone from Tokyo. What's more important than having a Japanese driver winning championships. And, and I think that's going yep. to take precedence over everything else. But I did, I did think it was interesting and I can't find the exact quote now, but it was a general acknowledgement from Watanabe that uh, while they won't be able to specifically dictate or influence the decision, they'll certainly be able to give feedback and recommendations as to who should be in that car. Interestingly, yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry, please go on. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I, I do have that uh, quote from uh, Koji Wat, uh, Watanabe here, and it is a follows quote. We have been accelerating out uh, development during our uh, recent time in Formula 1 while working with Alonso, and that has enabled us to win the world championship. The selection of drivers is up to the team to decide. So if the team decides we'll have Alonso as a driver again, we will have no objections whatsoever in him driving, end quote. So uh, anyways, um, Martin Whitmarsh also has a couple of things to say on that. Uh, he says, uh, quote, clearly Fernando's doing a great job in the team, and I'm delighted to have him as part of our team as he's making a great contribution both on and off the track. Obviously, I spoke to Fernando a while ago about the direction we wanted to go. He's a very intelligent individual. I'm sure everyone here is referring to some comments that were made in the heat of a battle once, which were quite memorable for some, GP2. but I think he understands. GP2. Yeah, the GP2, yeah. yeah, and respects what Honda is doing. We've got to be aware, and we haven't said that, uh, but we should say it. Honda won the 2021 and 2022 World Championships, and unless we can beat them this year, they're going to do it again. So they are a great partner for us, and I think Fernando sees that. Probably 2026, who knows? It's probably outside his planning horizon at the moment we've got to give him a card that is consistently capable of winning races and as i hope you've observed we've made a reasonable step forward this year we're not going to get to where we need to be but we continuing to develop the team's facilities and we'll get stronger end quote and that's from an article from lawrence barreto on formula1.com but mark uh, you uh, <laughs> you you just uh, mentioned it with the what um, what martin was uh, referring to the the famous comments that were made in the heat of the battle was back uh, when he he was driving for uh, McLaren uh, you know, from 2015 to 2017, and he called uh, the the Honda engine a GP2 engine when uh, at the Japanese GP2 Grand Prix. GP2 at the year. time I mean, was a Formula yeah. One feeder series, so it was a yeah. massive insult that that did, was not well received in Tokyo by any means. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was about sort of the peak of grumpy Fernando. <laughs> there, There's a lot of choice, uh, you know, like, um, uh, you know, at, at very uh, unflattering things that he said uh, on the radio, uh, you know, many, many times uh, during that, uh, that, that, that era. But yeah, very, very exciting to see. So, Mark, let's just uh, let's uh, take another quick break here. We'll come back at a couple of uh, fun stories to talk about. And the first one we'll talk about is um, how racing drivers blink when they're driving their cars around a racetrack. So we'll do that in a moment. So don't go away. We'll be back on the flip side. All right. Welcome back. So, this is an interesting one that uh, you pulled up uh, for the show outline, and this is an article that uh, is on NewScientist.com. This is probably the first and only time that we will go to <laughs> you know a website and a publication like NewScientist.com for a Formula One story. But this is a, a, a story that's uh, written by Sumya Sagar, and it's called uh, Racing Drivers Blink at the Same Points When Going Around a Track. And then uh, the byline uh, goes on to say, synchronized blinking may reflect a certain cognitive state that professional racers have when controlling a fast-moving car. So this is very interesting. So I'll just read from uh, from this uh, article from uh, Sumia. And uh, it says uh, here, different racing drivers blink at around the same points in a circuit, which could reflect their synchronized mental states as they concentrate on controlling the car. Blinking lubricates our eyes, but it, how it links to other aspects of our health are unclear. Studying this further could better us, uh, pardon me, could help us better understand conditions where blinking rates change, such as Parkinson's disease. We generally blink about 12 times per minute, which e- with each blink lasting about one third of a second. Our blinking rate has been linked to the attention we give a certain task, with some people blinking less when they concentrate on a screen. Uh, many people think that blinking is done solely to moisten the eyes, but only a few blinks per minute suffice for this purpose, says Ryota Nishizono at NTT Communication Science Laboratories in Atsugi, Japan. To study how driving could influence uh, blinking, Nishizono and his colleagues looked at three professional male drivers working for a Formula racing team. The drivers carried out 304 practice laps of three circuits in Japan, Fuji, Suzuka, and Sugo. A binocular eye tracker mounted on their helmets recorded their blinking counted by machine learning. An analysis of the data revealed that, although the blinking frequency of the drivers differed, they generally blinked around the same points on each circuit with their rate of blinking decreasing as they drove faster." End quote. Now that is absolutely fascinating. Number one, I'd like to know who came up with it, with the idea to do this in the first place. But uh, it's it's very interesting how they, you know, they they're, they're linking, uh, or they they found that the they, that the drivers have this sort of synchronized blinking when they would get to certain parts of the track because they're all going to try to hit the same entry points for the corner, try to hit the same uh, apex of the quarter, try and get the you know the fastest line around the track. So there there's obviously some underlying mental process that uh, in the brain of all these drivers and perhaps all of us that uh, is being reflected in this this physiological this physical reaction in the eye blinking but to see that it would happen at roughly the same time i wonder if it sort of precedes some sort of you know more um you know what do you want to call it um 
more physical exertion when they throw the car into a turn or something like this. This this is very very interesting, Mark. I, I don't know where you found this story, but I just I like I wish it's it's very short. I mean, I read the entire article there in about like what 15, 20 seconds or whatever it was. But I, I'd love to know, you know, if if they could really dig deeper into this. What are the implications of of this? Because obviously. There's got to be more to it than just, um, oh, they just all happen to blink at the same time, at the same points on the track, and that's it. You know, like, what is the deeper story to this? Very, very cool stuff. Mark, this article was far too complex for me. So I had sent you the link in the hopes that you would be able to break it down in a manner that I was better able to understand. So congratulations, mission accomplished. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I found it. And I, I take no credit. I'm not typically reading newscientist.com. I, I found it on Reddit. There you go. Well, wherever you found it, it was a uh, very cool one to throw into the uh, into the show outline for this week. Um, anyways, the next story I wanted to talk about, and uh, you'd mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, like off the top of the show when we were talking about, uh, well, I, I mean, <laughs> some some of the not very nice things we said about the Monaco Grand Prix. But one thing you did mention uh, about is uh, you know that they they typically would wrestle the, the 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 television broadcast away from Formula One, but apparently. Formula One has wrested control back away from the local uh, people, and uh, they're going to be doing that for this week. And they're going to be broadcasting the Monaco Grand Prix on their own for the very first time. So this means now that Formula One is in charge of operations at races across the entire calendar. So, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this one? Yeah, and, and I, I'll kind of get through this one pretty quickly because we've still got some other great stuff to talk about. But the the main point here being that the Monaco race organizers have historically been able to dictate that their production team broadcast the race. So they would use their own television cameras and they would use their own production crew and their own, most importantly, directors to put together the feed. And then Formula One, Sky, et cetera, would just pick up the feed and throw their own broadcast um, Roy race analysis on top of it. Um, They've not historically done a very good job, to be totally honest. And I think criticism peaked in 2000 when there was a brewing battle on track between Sebastian Vettel and Pierre Gasly. And just and just as Vettel was emerging from the pits and was about to go head-to-head with Gasly in a very, very, very tasty little battle, the TV feed cut away, and I'm, I'm referencing racingnews365.com, the TV feed cut away to a replay of Lance Stroll making a mistake and cutting a chicane, missing what everyone wanted to see, which was the battle between Pierre Gasly and Sebastian Vettel. So if if that wasn't the final nail in the coffin, I'm not totally sure what was, but it just means now that Formula One would use their own cameras, their own production team, and most importantly, their own race directors. And the race directors are the individuals that sit, have all of the different feeds in front of them, and they're the ones that are picking and choosing what we see at home on the global feeds. Uh, so it should be it should be an improved experience this year. Obviously, the the window dressing, which would be the Sky Sports, Sky Sports broadcast packaging and and logos and emblems, that was always there. But the actual race direction should be should be better this year. 
Yeah, cool. Looking forward to, to that. Um, sticking with Monaco, McLaren is going to run a one-off Triple Crown livery at uh, Monaco to celebrate uh, their 60th uh, anniversary. So they're going to have papaya at the back, white in the middle, and black livery on the front. So um, obviously the cars, uh, they're driven this year by Lando Norris and uh, Piastri. So there, there's a reason that they chose these three uh, colors. Uh, so the, the papaya at the back is to celebrate uh, McLaren's uh, maiden win at the Indy 500 that was driven by Johnny Rutherford way back in 1974. And then in the middle of the car, they have what they call Sharp Ice White, which is in recognition of uh, Frenchman Alan Prost's 1984 Monaco Grand Prix win. And that is really sort of iconic of that uh, that era of McLaren cars that had the, the red and white uh, color scheme from the mid-80s to the early 90s, obviously more synonymous with um, <laughs> a certain cigarette brand until uh, they switched to, to silver in the early 2000s, which was also, you know, congruent with another cigarette brand. Anyways, finally, on the front of the car, they're going to have black, which is uh, a tribute to the McLaren F1 GTR that won the 1995 Le Mans 24 Hours. And that was a car that was driven by J.J. Leto, Yannick Dalmas, and uh, Masanori Sakaya. And that was uh, McLaren's first shot at uh, at, uh, Le Mans. So very, very cool. You know, I like the idea of, um, you know, teams and drivers being able to do some of these uh, special liveries. We saw last year Lando and uh, Danny Ricardo having those really cool kind of throwback retro helmets for, for, for Monaco. And we've seen t- teams do things like this, uh, you know, before. And uh, I, I'm all for it. I think it looks uh, pretty good. You know, sadly, the car itself isn't the, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, this year, but uh, certainly uh, a cool idea for, uh, for McLaren to do that okay uh moving to the next one so uh, mercedes are predicting a two-tenth of a second game uh in, in time from the new direction that they're going in with the the w14 and the new uh upgrade uh, package that's uh coming on daily, the car daily the no, zero pods are gone the zero pods are gone can you that- believe it that's you know really kind of shocking considering that they've stuck with it for so long and obviously it was a concept that wasn't working because as we just talked about even last week or the week before on the podcast where we said that if that zero side pod concept was something that uh, that that was good that was going to be uh, going to be something then Everybody else would have caught on to it. Everybody would have copied it. But the fact that nobody didn't and uh, Mercedes stuck with it for as long as they could th- that they have until now is uh, you know quite extraordinary. But uh, glad to see that uh, they, they've moved uh, away from that. Anyways, um, Mercedes race engineer uh, Andrew Shovlin said uh, earlier this year, quote, at the time we made some dis- decisions how to develop the W14, how it works aerodynamically and how to design some of its features differently um so obviously that uh you know they, they put some uh, thought into this but uh mark okay what what other things are we looking at uh, then in addition to the disappearance of the uh of the zero side pod concept 
So here's what we know. So we're sitting here recording on Thursday, May 25th. It's about 10.30 p.m. Pacific time. So we haven't yet seen the cars on the grid, but a number of sleuth photographers and people in attendance at the race in Monaco have been able to snag some photos of the Mercedes W14s being assembled in the garage. And there are a couple of things that do stick out. One is the fact that the side pods have been transformed. Now, they are not Red Bull specific side pods. They are not Aston Martin side pods, but they are far more similar to what Red Bull and Aston Martin are rocking than certainly what was on this car at the last time we competed in a Formula One Grand Prix. So a couple of things, the zero pod design has been smoothed out. It is gone. And it appears that we're moving from a, a very awkward, tight vertical inlet to more of a horizontal uh, inlet. Now it's speculated amongst the analysts and folks in the media that all Ultimately, this still isn't the side pod that that Mercedes wanted, but that they're ultimately significantly limited by the packaging of the power unit in the cooling system and the side impact structures that ultimately the side pods that they probably wanted to develop or something we're not going to see until they have a new chassis on the W15 next year. But ultimately, it's a pretty significant change. Two other big things that we expect to see this weekend. One is a new floor, which is not insignificant. And typically when you make an aerodynamic change as significant as changing the side pods on the upper surfaces of the car, there's a knock-on effect. And that resulted in some other aerodynamic tweaks and modifications, including a new floor. And the other big thing, and there's some really great photos, and I'm probably not best equipped to talk about the advantages of this design yet, but they have a fundamentally new front suspension, which which has much more in common with the AMR 23 and the current generation Red Bull than the Mercedes that we last saw on the track. So these are not insignificant updates when you're talking about re-evaluating the entire uh, aerodynamic surfaces of your side pods and the floor. And of course, in past years, the floor may not have been so critical, but given the fact that you're generating downforce from it, um, there's absolutely uh, some some opportunity to gain some performance. Now, the key is there's probably not a lot we're going to be able to take away from this upgrade this weekend, simply because like you described so eloquently earlier, this isn't a particularly racy track. Now, it will be interesting to see what times look like in in qualifying, but ultimately it's still going to take Mercedes some time to better understand the setup that they're going to need camber. Um, and obviously all the other things that go into setting up a car for a formula one grand prix. So this is their first race with it. We should have a much better understanding of the impact of these upgrades come Spain the following weekend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When we see the car on a proper Formula One track, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. But um, yeah, I was just checking also when you're saying that uh, you know the cars haven't taken to the track yet. I was just checking on the the official Formula One website. So we're we're now less than six hours away from the first practice session at, at Monaco, as we sit here record at ten thirty p.m. on Thursday night here on 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 the West Coast. Now, before we get into uh, this next story from uh, Sam Cooper, I'm planetf1.com i think i think we have to preface this with this has to be the 
I guess, the story of the week that made the least sense. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, Sam's article kind of, you know, nicely elaborates on that. And this was this uh, rumor that uh, came out uh, last weekend, uh, you know, in and around the you know, cancelled uh, Emma Grand Prix. And that that was the rumor that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton was going to make a switch to Ferrari. And when, when I first heard those rumors, my, my initial thought was, why? Like, like, why would Lewis even contemplate that? He's got his seven chips. He's at Mercedes. He's at a team that's uh, all about him and he's all about them. They got a, a, a great uh, relationship uh, together. And it like, what, what what's uh, Lewis now? 38 years old. I mean, he's not old, but I mean, it's just like, would you really want to go from a well-oiled machine like Mercedes? And, and, and even though that they haven't been performing at what we've been used to over the past two years compared to the previous, what was it? Seven or eight. I mean, this is still Mercedes. I mean, we we just literally got finished talking about how they're, they've, they've moved away from this, uh, you know, design concept that they've had for the past 18 months. And, you know, they're, they're going to a different design concept. Lewis said, uh, you know, in the meantime that he's close to signing a new deal with them and the current performance of the car over this year and last year had nothing to do with his uh, decision. But I mean, why would he at the age that he's at and everything that he's achieved with, um, you know, in Formula One with the uh, Mercedes, why would he want to like leave such a good place like Mercedes and go to a team like Ferrari that at least on the outside seems a lot more chaotic and less well organized and they, they've obviously got their 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 challenges and this seems to be a bit of a perpetual Ferrari story I mean maybe Frederick Vasseur is the person that can go in there and sort them out get them organized and get them focused but we've probably said that about the last several team principles at uh, Ferrari I've not, I don't know Mark I, I just uh, I, I thought this was just a, a bit of a strange story and I think that that Lewis even made the, the quip uh, earlier this week that I guess that nobody had anything else to talk about with the cancellation of the Grand Prix last weekend so just talking about something was better than talking about nothing and I tend to agree with them I mean I I see very little logic in in Lewis switching to Ferrari with you I'd love to hear your thoughts now that I've rambled a bit. I it's it's totally illogical, and and I think uh, Lewis. Well, I think I know Lewis addressed this during media availability today in Monaco when he said, uh, "I think naturally when you're in contract negotiations, there's always going to be speculation. I think ultimately, unless you hear from me, then that's all it is." And furthermore, he indicated that contracts, the contract, and updated a renewed contract is quote unquote nearly there and then further reinforce that there's been no contact with Ferrari whatsoever. And of course, this week, Ferrari also denied that there have been conversations with, with Lewis Hamilton. One of the things that I did think was very interesting, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, where Lewis made these comments, uh, I think naturally when your contract locations, et cetera, et cetera, at this media availability, he did further continue on that it was a very specific person in that room of reporters that had published the story that I think has been largely debunked since that time. So I thought it was interesting that he specifically called out that individual, not by name, but acknowledged that that person was in the room. And I think that's good because obviously F1 Reddit and F1 Twitter exploded earlier this week with this kind of understanding this impression, this idea that this could be a real world move. And I just, I cannot think for the life of me 
what it would be that Ferrari could offer to entice Lewis to that organization, especially at this point in his career. And you and I have spoken so much about the fact that Lewis possibly has the leverage and the ability to negotiate almost any salary that he wants. But furthermore, if if I'm a part of the Ferrari team and I help deliver six world championships, six world drivers championships to this team, at this point, I'm negotiating for equity in the team. Total Wolf owns a third of the team. Mercedes AMG owns a third of the team. Ultimately, I'm negotiating for a slice of this team. And Ferrari would never give you that. That I just I think that there's more at stake here and there's more at play in terms of the contract negotiations than is simply a salary. I think a lifetime ambassador role and I think it, an ownership stake in the team is something that's probably being negotiated. He would never get that at Ferrari. And I was thinking about this earlier today because I knew we were going to talk about this. And I thought... Well, it makes sense that he would still have a conversation with Ferrari. And years and years and years ago, um, when I was in a job, I was approached by somebody from a different company. And he said, and he was trying to recruit me. And he basically said, like, look, Mark, you may not be shopping for a new coat, but it doesn't hurt to go out to the mall every now and then and try some new coats on because maybe you're going to find something that you like. And his point was ultimately, don't be so comfortable in your job that you assume there's no other fits out there. And I think typically it would make sense for Lewis Hamilton to entertain offers from other teams because it builds up your leverage in contract negotiations. But I think that would ultimately create more friction than it would help produce an abundance of leverage in these negotiations. That That's how deep and entrenched the relationship is with, with Mercedes. But it was a very, very clickbaity topic. And I got very upset with a lot of news news uh news publications that ran with this as if it was anything meaningful like who's reporting this what are your sources what are your quotes was there a conversation maybe was it meaningful enough that you needed to run a story no it wasn't so here we are you know i i mean maybe ferrari's a little bit closer than than, than we think i mean at least what we've seen over the past uh, couple of years that uh, it, it still obviously seems to be a bit of work and at times seems to be a, a little bit sloppy and disorganized and i, I don't think there's anything you know that can really do, to be disputed about that but i mean at the stage lewis is at his in his career he doesn't need the money i mean he's already accrued generational wealth i mean he's got so many records i mean to, to to me, I mean, if, if I look back in 10 or 20 years on Lewis Hamilton and his career in Formula One, I'm going to think, first of all, um, Mercedes, that I'm going to think McLaren when he broke into the sport. Ferrari, and this is not you know, intended to be disrespectful, it'd be, but it'd be like the Washington Wizards years for, for, for MJ, right? You know, that, that, that's the immediate vibe that I got. And le- like you said, that this was just a clickbaity kind of thing. And I, I really don't see any uh, thing, you know, <laughs> any reason for him to go, but, you know, just, uh, I just want to follow this up with a, a little bit of an act- anecdote because I just, um, you know, just mentioned that, uh, you know, I would think, you know, in, in order of precedence, the, the Mercedes years, then McLaren, and then, you know, possibly something else. However, unlikely that, seems but we were in japan in 2007 and at that time in tokyo there were billboards and posters of lewis 
everywhere. And I can't remember now if it was for, for Hugo Boss or Tag Heuer. It was one of the two, you know, some of those, you know, those long time kind of like those brands that are almost uh, very synonymous uh, with, uh, with with McLaren. But it was really interesting because, I mean, this was, you know, when, when Lewis was first breaking into Formula One, he hadn't really established uh, a name for himself. I mean, he was obvious right from the bat that, that this guy was an incredibly talented, uh, you know, driver. And, you know, here we are almost uh, 20 years later, well, 15 years later, I guess, uh, whatever it is, you know, a little bit more, you know, the, and he's accomplished all these things. But it, it was pretty cool to see even at that point, because, you know, my, my wife and I made the comments at the time is, oh, look at all the, you know, the, the branding, all the advertising for, for Lewis and Formula. And that's really cool because, you know, we don't see that at home. We still don't, but it was very cool to see uh, all that uh, time ago. Um, I wanted to just uh, talk quickly about this one here. This is a story from Jonathan Noble over at motorsport.com. Jonathan's just talking about why, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Mercedes improving and expanding their, their campus is uh, such an important thing and almost getting like that, that Silicon Valley style vibe to their campus. So they've uh, committed 70 million pounds in, uh, in upgrading their facilities since uh, 2017. And uh, now Mercedes has given, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, or the, the green light to their biggest overhaul of the, uh, of their campus It's going to be, uh, you know, finished by the end of 2025. It's going to make their campus more pedestrian friendly there'll be new construction of marketing buildings leisure facilities restaurants and all sorts of things to help improve the team's uh, working uh, environment uh, total wolf says that uh, he, he says he doesn't want it to, to be just the best factory in formula one but this is something that they want to rival the the best that even silicon valley and the big tech companies can can uh, put up uh, anyways uh, total uh, told uh, jonathan noble in an exclusive interview with uh, motorsport.com quotes we are not orientating ourselves towards competitors in our sports we are orientating ourselves towards the best technology campuses that we know from the united states that's the ambition end quote so very cool to see and you know more reassuringly that uh, to, to me this just signals that uh, th- this is a team that is obviously committed to formula one for the long, long, long term. So I think that's uh, very, very cool. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to, I mean, I'll probably let you talk about this one so I can take a bit of a breather, grab a drink of water. But uh, anyways, Red Bull apparently is going to sell Alpha Tauri uh, before 2026 and the, and the changeover because that whole brand, that team, no longer has any relevance uh, to their uh, to their brand to their company. So, Mark, <laughs> this is something. How long have we been ranting on oh, about this now? Like too like, long, too long, long, too long. So let yeah. let me let me establish the timeline this week because the story kind of flip flops a little bit. But on uh, May twenty third, Oliver Harden over at PlanetF1.com wrote an article called "Red Bull Will Sell Alpha Tauri Before F1 2026: Brand Has No Relevance." Now, if you dig into the article, the entire the entire genesis of 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 this work is quotes from. F1, quote unquote, F1 business expert, Mark Gallagher. And according to Mark Gallagher, and I'll pull up a quote here, he believes that 
AlphaTauri in its current state offers zero development value to Red Bull, and that ultimately at a valuation of 800, 800 million to a billion dollars, it simply makes more sense to, to sell the team on. And we've heard this, although Helmut Marco responded to it, ultimately indicated that they decided to keep it. So it was interesting this week that this topic resurfaced. Now, Another article that popped up on May 24th by Philip Clearin over at motorsport.com is entitled Red Bull decides against AlphaTauri F1 sale as it finalizes its plans. So we had an article from Planet F1 on Thursday, or sorry, on Tuesday, indicating that sale was imminent, that the AlphaTauri team had little relevance or value to Red Bull. And then on the 24th, motorsport.com was reporting that actually Red Bull hasn't decided, has in fact decided that they wanted to keep the team. So I'm going to quote here, the decision has been made. Alpha Tauri will remain fully owned by Red Bull and will continue to be run as a junior team. Red Bull advisor Marco, uh, Helmet Marco revealed in a YouTube interview. Uh, furthermore, it looks like they will continue to use the team as a driver development infrastructure, which is the entire reason that they acquired the team 15, 16 years ago, um, and that it will continue to be powered by the Red Bull Ford powertrain. So yeah, just an interesting flip-floppy story. And you know, I was talking to some of our listeners about this, and we had some spaces this week. And I think people are tired of the story. But I think more than anything, that as we sit here with just 10 teams on the grid, and with so much appetite for more teams, yet you have to kind of constantly remember, kind of remind yourself that there might be 10 functional teams, like in, in practice, there may be 10 teams on the grid, but in reality, there's only nine teams that are actually competing for world championship because Alpha Tower exists for no other reason than to be a feeder team for, for Red Bull. That that's the honest truth. So it's a little bit disappointing. And I think this is one of the things that both the FIA and Liberty should press Red Bull on. But at this state, according to Helmut Marco, Red Bull has no designs to sell this team, despite what Mark Gallagher reported a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things that w- when I read those uh, two stories you threw into the to the outlines, I was like, I'm so so confused. Will they? Won't they? It's <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it uh, from a, a driver development uh, point of view, and I think that's the sort of the crux, the 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 whole bone of contention that both you and I have with the existence of of Alpha Tauri, and, and and you nailed it. I thought it was a great point that you made that Alpha Tauri exists solely as a junior development team for 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 Red Bull. It's like essentially a rolling driver academy. So, I mean, they they, they might occasionally get uh, some good uh, finishes. I mean, they, they've actually won a couple of races in Formula One. Uh, Vettel won was was it the Italian Grand Prix or something back in two thousand and eight? Yep. yep. And then uh, you know, did, didn't Max win a race for them or so? I can't remember. No, what? No, no, Max didn't. No, but Gasly, uh, Pierre Gasly, Gasly, Gasly. Yep. That's right. He won uh, at Monza last uh, year as well. And they've had the odd podium here and there. Yeah, of course, Max won his first uh, race uh, with uh, with Red Bull at uh, at at, uh, at Barcelona in two thousand. 16. Anyways, Mark, uh, the, the next story is an update. Uh, why didn't you take this one away? Because that's from Formula One journalist and, you know, someone that uh, both you and I really, really like a lot. That's uh, Jenny Gao, who suffered a stroke several months ago, uh, you know, at the, the young age of uh, 45, which was just a shocking, shocking story. But uh, 
Jenny has uh, provided uh, an update on her health and let us uh, let us know what's uh, what's going yes, on. Yes, some really great quotes here from planetf1.com uh, and I quote closing in on the 6th month mark since the medical emergency that was Jenny's stroke into Mark Stroke Awareness Month. Gao appeared on the BBC One show for a segment in which she and her husband Jamie Coley recounted the circumstances of the day on which she suffered her medical emergency. Says Jenny Gao, this was my life. Gao said over images showing her hard work in the F1 paddock before Stark switched to images of her lying in a hospital bed. But then my life changed dramatically. At 45, I suffered a serious stroke. I've spent the last few months learning to walk and more significantly to talk again. Just after Christmas, I got sick. It wasn't COVID, but I had a terrible cough. And then my husband, Jamie, found me collapsed in the bathroom. I was trying to call your name and get you to speak to me, said Coley. And I was just getting nothing back from you. It was the worst moment of my life. He also revealed how the company's or the company, the couple's six-year-old daughter, Isabel, had leaped into action to help her mother, who was very, or they said she was very upset. So it seems that her progress is, is ongoing. She's worked to recover as much of her speech as, as possible. Um, they've indicated that it's very possible that it may have been a viral cough that ultimately triggered the stroke, although that's particularly rare. Um, and says Jenny Gao, it was badly affecting my speech in the right side of my body. So I was transferred to a specialist unit in St. George's in London to have my clot removed before any further damage. Um, and the story goes on. Ultimately, her, her progress is coming, but I think it's been very, very complex. And I think ultimately, initially, they may not, and of course, they, they had no accountability or a need or requirement to openly express the severity of the stroke. But I think reading through these comments and listening to this BBC interview, you, you really begin to understand the gravity that was her stroke and just how seriously had it affected her. And, you know, when it happened, I'm thinking, you know, this is somebody that's, she's a staple in the paddock and she's my favorite voice on the checkered flag podcast. And she brings a certain type of energy and presence to every interview and every kind of analysis that she's a part of. And it's been heartbreaking that she hasn't been there this year. And I think I misunderstood the severity of the stroke that she'd had and thought, Hey, she'll be back on the grid by Monaco. And you know what, even if she's never back on the grid, but she can find a way to, uh, learn to, acquire or reacquire a really great quality of life. I think that's all that matters. Um, but yeah, very, very, very sad, but it's great to know that she's making some pretty significant strides and, and it sounds like she's made some really, really great progress in terms of being able to re-engage her husband and her family verbally, which is nice to know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, frighteningly, I mean, for, for you and I, I mean, she is in our age group and, you know, and, and strokes, you know, aren't, you know, a, a health condition that uh, we, we typically associate to people in, in their forties. So, I mean, w when I first heard that she had, you know, fallen so ill and, you know, it was a stroke and it was so serious, I'm just like, my goodness. I mean, you know, out of all the things, I mean, that, that would be like one of the last things I would expect to hear from someone in, in, in this age, in this cohort to, to, to have, but, you know, just goes to prove that it can happen to almost anyone at any time. And, you know, that's uh, the, the scary thing, but, but great news to hear that, uh, that she's recovering nicely. And like you say, I mean, you know, the quality of life is improving, you know, for herself and her, her daughter and, and, and her husband. And that uh, really is uh, the, the, the main thing. So Mark, let's uh, move on now. Let's uh, close down the show by, uh, you know, talking a little bit more about the upcoming Grand Prix this weekend in Monaco in a little bit more detail. We talked quite a bit off it, uh, about it in the, the opening uh, segment. 
segment. Uh, before we do that, uh, let's uh, just give a little bit of background. So there have been 79 prior Grand Prix held in uh, Monaco, and uh, the first time was in 1929. The most winningest driver is the one and only Ayrton Senna, who won there six times. The most winningest constructor is McLaren, with 15 wins there. And uh, that is uh, quite uh, significantly more than um, a bunch of other dri- you know, other uh, teams. Ferrari has 10 wins in Monaco, Mercedes 8, Lotus 7, and Red Bull have 6. So the circuit is uh, 3.34 kilometers or 2.07 miles. Race length is 260.29 kilometers or 161 and three quarter miles long. 78 very, very, very long uh, last year, we saw uh, Charles Leclerc on pole. The podium was Sergio Perez winning, Carlos Sainz in second, Max Verstappen in third. The fastest lap was uh, set by Lando Norris, and that was a 114.693. The lap record is actually much faster than that. It is a 112.909, and that was set by Lewis Hamilton in a 20. 21. So, um, Mark, just a couple other things. So, with the tire compounds we're going to see here this weekend are the softest in the Pirelli range, the C3 hard, C4 mediums, and the C5 softs. Mark, is there anything else to add to a preview on this uh, weekend, um, you know, that we haven't said already? I I, I, I don't know what else. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I I guess it's probably more about the storylines that will intersect with this race, right? Which is obviously we've seen a Red Bull, with the exception of Australia, we've seen a Red Bull one, two, every single race. So we've seen some pretty dominant Red Bull performances so far this year. So I think one of the things that we can watch for is does that continue? Does that carry on? Uh, Obviously, Fernando Alonso has been absolutely exceptional in that car, claiming podium after podium after podium and significantly outperforming his teammate in Lance Stroll, which probably isn't helpful for Lance Stroll's long-term Long-term prospects in that car, although obviously the benefit uh, of your father owning the team is helpful in ensuring that you have that ride for at least a couple more years. And then the other stories would be things like Mercedes and Mercedes is bringing this not insignificant upgrade and will it make any difference? Will they be able to get the setup dialed in over the first couple of days to make sure that their race trim is as effective as possible? And then we've seen Ferrari have some reasonably strong qualifying performances this year. Like you said, right from the start, if you have a great, great qualifying session and you end up on pole, maybe there's a surprise win to be had at this Grand Prix for a team not named Red Bull. And honestly, I I think there's open, honest, frank conversations at this point about whether Red Bull wins every single race this year. And, and, Maybe Monaco is where that streak is ultimately snapped and we see something different. So I I think for me, it's ultimately going to be less about the race itself, but more about the storylines that you and I have been talking about through the first couple of months of the season and how they intersect with Monaco. And then, of course, after Monaco, we have a really quick turnaround to Barcelona, which, of course, is one of your favorite races on, on the calendar. And I think that that should be, although not the best circuit on the calendar. It's definitely 
refreshing after a weekend in, in Monaco. But I think that ultimately anything can happen. And I know at least earlier this week, there were forecasts that suggested that we could see some moisture and we could see some rain on the track. And of course, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. It could introduce a little bit of chaos. And you know, you introduce a safety card, you bunch up the field, and then you start racing again. There could be contact. Like There are some crazy things that could happen. So obviously, there's always reasons to tune into a Grand Prix. Uh, if there's moisture, there's an added reason to tune in, not because, of course, we're cheering for damage and chaos, but we're cheering for an unpredictable outcome. But yeah, I think for me, it's less about the race because I'm, I'm not particularly thrilled with Monaco as the race track is constructed today, but more about, hey, how does this race intersect and play with these storylines that you and I have been talking about for the first few months this year? That, that that's true, and I should just uh, mention that uh, since 2018, in the 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 four previous races that we've uh, seen there, are actually going back to 2017. Uh, so the last five races we've seen uh, winners from three different teams. We had uh, Seb winning for Ferrari in 2017. Danny Ricardo won there in 2018. Lewis won there in 2019. 2020 was uh, no Grand Prix there because of COVID, and the last two years we saw Max and Sergio winning for. For, for Red Bull. So, you know, we, we have seen, uh, you know, a little bit of a turnover in, you know, it hasn't been completely predictable. Although I was just looking at a list of winners. So Nico Rosberg won there three times in a row, 2013, 14th and 15th. Why do I not remember <laughs> any of those? I'm, I'm drawing a complete blank. And then Lewis winning there in, in 2016, we had, uh, you know, four wins in a row for uh, Mercedes, right? Uh, well, I mean, 2014 is when it really uh, kicked off. 2013, maybe not so much. I mean, that was uh, the last year of the the normally aspirated uh, engines, but it, it could be you know, interesting. I mean, you know, we, we've been pretty negative about it. The, I'd say the the best part that I love about uh, watching Monaco over the course of the weekend is you get some. Th- fantastic super slow motion shots of these cars going around the circuit and when you see them like coming as close to those armco barriers as they do and sometimes brushing up against them i mean you talk about life being a game of inches and we we talk about you know that uh, you know that that formula 1 and motorsport just like how precise the drivers are when you see some of these super slow motion shots and how close they come to these barriers it is absolutely incredible. And it's sometimes when you see them actually hit those Armco barriers, it's pretty, pretty cool, you know, to, 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 to watch it. I mean, like you said, we're not really cheering, obviously, for, for any mayhem and chaos and things like that. But when you see that they do brush these uh, these barriers, which, you know, is literally faster than the blink of an eye and you'll rarely pick up, uh, you know, at, at full speed is really quite incredible. So if you're going to tune and watch, you know, look, look for those, uh, you know, those clips all weekend because they're going to be uh, pretty cool and uh, that'll really blow your mind. But before we go. I just wanted to just remind everybody of the standings. So in the Drivers' uh, World Championship, we have uh, Max Verstappen currently leading the way with 119 points. That is 14 points ahead of his teammate, Sergio Perez, who is 105. Fernando Alonso currently in third with 75. Lewis Hamilton is fourth with 56. And then Carlos Sainz rounds out the top five in the World Championship with 44 points. Over on the constructor side, we have Red Bull uh, racing away 
away with 224 points in the constructors, 102 for Aston Martin, 96 for Mercedes, 78 for Ferrari, and then only 14 points for McLaren. So certainly, uh, you know, lots to play for, lots to race for yet as we move uh, through the season. And Hammy, I think that's about it. Uh, you know, I don't really want to make a prediction on this one. I mean, my, my heart and my mind both say that that it's going to be a Red Bull driver winning this weekend. But uh, if we, we see a little bit of moisture, it could really, you know, uh, throw everything upside down and, and, and change it uh, around. So, you know, maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. Anyways, uh, before we go, just want to remind everyone, uh, if you want to support the show, by all means, the easiest and quickest and best way to do so is head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you enjoy podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review, and that uh, really helps uh, us grow the show, and we are much appreciative of uh, everything that uh, that we do. And uh, on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you so much for listening. you want to get in touch, please send us a, an email at uh, scooteryf1pod at gmail.com or send us a tweet at scooteryf1pod. That's it. That's a wrap. We will be back on Sunday night to wrap this one up. And on behalf of myself and Mark Hamilton, enjoy the race and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.